1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Today, we'll be talking about Lebanon, one year after an almighty blast in the capital Beirut, how it came at an already terrible time for the country, a personal view on how Beirut's history is pockmarked with explosions, shrapnel, and civil war, and how the still unfolding economic crisis affects everyday matters like the price of a hamburger. It was shortly after 6 p.m. on the 4th of August, 2020, when hundreds, perhaps thousands of tons of a chemical called ammonium nitrate stored in Beirut's port exploded. Shattered glass rained down from buildings. Residents were thrown like ragdolls against the walls of their apartments.
2: All the windows, all the stairs, everything, everything went uh, chaos. It was a nightmare. It was, we felt that for the first time.
1: The blast killed at least 200 people, injured 5,000, and left 300,000 people without their homes. It was one of the largest non-nuclear explosions in human history. One year on, the country remains in dire straits, mired in political instability and facing an economic crisis that ranks as one of the world's worst since the 1850s.
3: It's hard even a year after the explosion to find the words to describe what Beirut felt like in the hours and days afterwards. I was living there at the time and walking around the city, it felt apocalyptic. Greg Karlstrom is our Middle East correspondent. I remember walking past, for example, the hospital across the street from my apartment, uh, which was very severely damaged. It was less than a kilometer away from the port. And seeing patients standing in the parking lot across the street holding their IV bags in one hand and trying to put pressure on fresh wounds from shrapnel with the other hand. You remember the sound of broken glass, which seemed like it was everywhere for days after the explosion. You would hear it falling down off of buildings. You would hear it crunching under tires and shoes as people moved in the streets. And it felt like a low point. It was hard to imagine that things would get any worse than they did last August. Well, have they? They have indeed become much worse. This economic crisis that was beginning to bite a year ago has become catastrophic at this point. There is no government empowered to deal with it because the country is still mired in a political crisis as well. No one has been held responsible for this explosion that killed more than 200 people.
1: Has there been an investigation into that at least?
3: There has been an investigation, but it has not come to any conclusions yet. Not only the big questions, you know, why was this ammonium nitrate stored improperly at the port for almost seven years, what triggered the explosion in the first place, but even the basic facts are still a mystery. So the death toll, we're told that 218 people died. That number is probably not accurate. It probably doesn't account for, among other things, refugees or migrants who may have been killed in the explosion. And so it's probably an undercount. Or the question of how much of this ammonium nitrate actually exploded. There were about 2,750 tons stored at the port. We know investigators from the FBI who were invited out last summer to help with the investigation, they believe only about one-fifth of that, only about 550 tons of ammonium nitrate actually exploded. But we don't know what happened to the rest. And
1: why is that? Why has there been so little progress in, in the pursuit of those?
3: Because there are many people in Lebanon who have a vested interest in there not being progress. We know from a combination of media reports and admissions from government officials that in the almost seven years, this ammonium nitrate was sitting at the port. Presidents knew about it, prime ministers, cabinet members, all of them knew there was essentially a bomb sitting in the center of their capital city, and none of them did anything about it. The judge overseeing the probe has asked to interrogate a number of high-ranking officials, To do that, the Lebanese government has to agree to lift their immunity, and the government has not done that. And
1: how does the public feel about the fact that no sunlight has yet been let in?
3: People are furious, particularly the families of the more than 200 people who were killed in the explosion. Uh, They've held protests off and on over the past year. They held one last month outside the home of Mohamed Fahmi, who's the interior minister. He had refused shortly before the protest, to lift immunity for one senior general who investigators want to speak to. And and of course, people are angry about this.
1: And I remember you telling us that the prime minister stepped down very shortly after the explosion. I mean, who is running the country at the moment? Still the same prime minister,
3: Sen Diab, you're correct. He stepped down two days after the blast, but he has remained in a caretaker role for the past year. And that's because the Lebanese political class cannot agree on a replacement, cannot agree on a new cabinet. Uh, there have been two men tapped as prime minister-designate over the past year, asked to form a government. They were both unable to do so because of and disputes amongst Lebanese officials. And they both eventually handed back the role of prime minister-designate. And last week, lawmakers asked a third man, Najib Meati, a former prime minister, to try his hand at forming a government. It's not clear if he's going to succeed either. He's going to run into some of the same obstacles that his predecessors faced. And
1: in the meantime, as you say, an economic crisis seems only to be getting worse and worse.
3: It is. This is a crisis that began to bite about two years ago. And it has its roots in the longtime currency peg that kept Lebanon's currency artificially strong. The central bank sustained that peg by running what was essentially a Ponzi scheme, borrowing huge amounts of money from commercial banks in Lebanon, using that to keep the country running, to keep the currency pegged, and offering bank depositors eye-popping interest rates to keep funneling money into the system. Uh, It began to unravel about two years ago, and so the currency began to detach from its peg, Uh, The country defaulted last year. The prime minister estimated that the banking sector was insolvent to the tune of about $83 billion. But since then, there's been no progress on dealing with its debts, on dealing with its banking sector.
1: And what does that economic paralysis look like for everyday Lebanese people?
3: It's been catastrophic. Their currency has lost 90% of its value in the past two years. Uh, Half the country, as a result of that, now lives below the poverty line. Medicine is widely unavailable. If you walk into pharmacies, the shelves are often bare because to import medicine requires dollars and dollars are in short supply at this point. The same goes for fuel, again, because there isn't enough hard currency in the country to import enough fuel. That's also had knock-on effects for power plants as well. And so the country only producing a few hours of state electricity each day and the private generators that people rely on to fill the gaps, those are running out of fuel, those are burning out. When I was there recently, it's a country that feels exhausted. Everyone is walking around sort of zombie-like because no one is sleeping well, because you don't even have electricity to run a fan at night. Everyone seems to be getting sick this summer because there's no power, therefore there's no refrigeration, and so the food supply has become contaminated.
1: And a year ago, you said you thought things couldn't get worse, and here we are a year on, and they have, and, and that downward path doesn't look like it's changing.
3: They haven't, and I fear that a year from now we're going to look back and say the same thing. On the economic front, the country is running dangerously low on hard currency. At some point, Lebanon is going to run into very serious problems importing food and fuel and basic necessities. And on the political front, there's not much hope that anything is going to change. Uh, Everyone at this point has an eye on parliamentary elections, which are scheduled for May. You have optimists who point to some elections on university campuses and professional syndicates that have gone in favor of opposition parties over the past year. But these parliamentary elections, they're going to take place first under an electoral law that makes it very difficult for opposition parties to break in. And so I fear that the next nine months are going to be wasted. And by next summer, Lebanon's socioeconomic situation will be much worse than it is today. And yet these elections will have reinstalled the same political class that brought the country into this crisis in the first place.
1: Greg, thank you very much
3: for joining us. Thank you.
1: It's not the first time that residents of Beirut have had to deal with unexpected destruction on their streets. Far from it. In our sister magazine, 1843, Margaret Kadifa recounts the experiences of one resident who's borne witness to the city's challenges for decades.
4: My grandmother, who was 91 at the time, was sitting out on the balcony of her flat which she does most summer evenings, trying to get some sort of feeling of breeze after a really hot day in Beirut. This was last August. And then she heard the first of what would be two explosions. She was sitting in this wicker chair, and she stood up to see where the explosion was coming from. And then the second explosion, which was much more powerful, knocked her back down shards of glass and splinters of wood started flying towards her, and she dove underneath this plastic table, and the windows of her apartment smashed inward. Luckily, all she got were a few small cuts on her legs from flying glass and wood. When you live through decades of turmoil, as she has, you know, you get a lot of practice at throwing yourself under furniture to stay safe. I went to visit her last week and stayed with her at that apartment. It's located in the Ashrafie neighborhood, which is in East Beirut, just a few miles from the port where the explosion took place last year. (laughs) (laughs) And the day I arrived, we sat out on that same balcony, and I was eating a plate of beef sambusak. It's like Lebanese empanadas. They're my favorite, and she makes them for me. And she told me about the five-odd decades that she's been living in that apartment. She first moved there in 1965 with my grandfather and their two young sons, one of whom is my father. And the idea was that it would be their family home. So eventually my dad and uncle, when they were adults, would live in other apartments in the same building with their families. She had a really wonderful life back when she first moved in. On sortait tout le temps, on
2: avait des amis, on avait des sorties, on avait des soirées, on passait des soirées. Alors,
4: on she and my grandfather went out every night with other couples to restaurants or to someone's house to play cards or to a comedy show at the nearby theater. At the time, in the late sixties and the early seventies, Beirut really seemed like a cosmopolitan haven in a part of the world that was becoming more and more turbulent. Then about ten years later everything took a turn for the worse. In 1974, my grandfather died of cancer. And a year later in 1975, a civil war broke out, basically because tensions in Lebanon's sectarian system of governance came to a head. Early on in the war, there were a few skirmishes in my grandmother's neighborhood, mostly between Christians and Palestinians. But in 1978, so about three years in, that was when, for the first time, she really felt under threat. And at that time, it was because there was some fighting between the Syrian army and Christian militias. There was a week of really heavy shelling in 1978 when my grandmother and her sons, who were now teenagers, hid with their neighbors in the basement of the apartment building. And her memories of this time are, are kind of oddly upbeat. During this week, have you Non, No, not no. You know, she told me she wasn't terribly afraid. She was really more worried about her sons, she was worried that they would be traumatized. And after a week, when the shelling had stopped, she and my uncle and father went back up to the apartment and all they found were a few broken windows. So the flat was more or less untouched. But unfortunately, the next decade, her luck ended up changing. In 1989, just when the war was coming to an end, there was a battle in my grandmother's neighborhood, and she remembers that it was between the Lebanese army and a Christian militia. And at that point, my father and my uncle had both left. They'd immigrated to America, and my grandmother was alone. She hid in the lavatory because it was the only room in the house that wasn't connected to any external walls. This time, she was actually afraid. During these hours of fighting, a bomb exploded in the apartment building across the street. And even though she wasn't actually harmed, she kind of felt the impact of that. When the fighting ended a few hours later, she found that there was black water all over the floor from broken radiators in her apartment. And she just looked at it and said that she couldn't bear to see her home like that.
3: And she turned
4: around and she left. Soon afterwards, she left Beirut and she went to stay with my parents in California. This was the first time that she had the choice to leave. She could have stayed in America with my family but she really missed home and she missed her friends and and she missed her apartment. So she ended up going back to Beirut and repairing her flat and continuing to live there. In 2017, my grandmother, who at this point is in her late 80s, decided that her apartment needed a facelift. She replaced decades-old sofas and she installed new lighting and she retiled the bathrooms and the kitchen. And at the time, my family and I were joking that peace must be coming to the Middle East because finally she's willing to devote time and resources to renovating her apartment without being afraid that it could be destroyed in an instant. And of course, it turns out that both she and my family were wrong. The port blast in 2020 ripped the balcony's French doors off their hinges, and it ripped her kitchen door in half, and every window in the whole apartment was completely shattered. My grandmother, when I visited last week, she really was her old self, you know, in spite of everything. She's funny and sassy and very sociable. When we were visiting, my husband was with me and she beat him in several rounds of a game called Basra. It's like a Lebanese card game. And it's kind of the same for her apartment. You know, when you look around it, she's replaced her windows and she's fixed her doors. And you would never know that it had been damaged a year before. But the blast has really left its mark on my grandmother and on the rest of the country. The Lebanese are really good at rebuilding, you know, because they have to be. But this time really felt different. And that's because the port explosion and the financial crisis that the Lebanese are dealing with right now were not chance events. They were caused by decades of government incompetence and corruption. And so the Lebanese are really asking themselves, what are we building back for? what future does this country have? And my grandmother told me when I was visiting that a few days after the blast, she called a cab and she started driving through the streets towards the destroyed port. She wanted to see it for herself. She drove past concrete apartment blocks that are like her own, and and all those windows would have been shattered, and there was glass all over the street. And taking in her surroundings and just the sheer scale of the damage, She started to cry. And it was really, really one of the first times that she felt completely alone in this city that had always been her home.
1: The blast that tore at Beirut's heart a year ago was not a cause of Lebanon's current malaise. It was a symptom of a longer-running sickness, the country's self-interested political class, a sickness made worse by economic policies that were headed inevitably for collapse. Lebanon's economy is still collapsing. Inflation is at more than 100% year on year, pain that citizens feel in grocery stores, at pharmacies, and at burger joints.
2: For the last 35 years, The Economist's Big Mac Index has compared the price of the iconic McDonald's burger around the world to show whether currencies are undervalued or overvalued.
1: Simon Cox is a senior economics editor at The Economist and steward of the Big Mac Index.
2: So we've been including Lebanon in our Big Mac index for a few years now. And right now, it's absolutely at the bottom of the list. That is, it's the cheapest burger we can find anywhere in the world, at least using the black market exchange rate in Lebanon.
1: What do you mean at the bottom of the list? How cheap are we talking?
2: So one thing the restaurant prides itself on is its consistency. Big Mac should be roughly the same everywhere you go. And so in theory, it should cost roughly the same as well. But as our index has shown, that's rarely the case. And that tells you something about the economies in which you can buy those burgers. So in the US, a Big Mac costs about $5.60 in big cities. It's a bit cheaper elsewhere. In Lebanon, the Big Mac costs the equivalent of only $1.68. So you can buy a Big Mac for about 37,000 Lebanese pounds. That sounds an awful lot, but the Lebanese pound isn't worth very much on the black market. It takes 22,000 Lebanese pounds to buy a dollar. At that foreign exchange rate, a Big Mac costs the equivalent of just a dollar 68
1: and so what is it that's made the lebanese big mac essentially the cheapest in the world
2: So when we first introduced Lebanon into the Big Mac Index around 2018, the Big Mac price was stable, the official exchange rate was pegged to the dollar, and the Big Mac was fairly cheap. It was about 20% undervalued. Then inflation took off in Lebanon. You'll remember there was the default on government debt in March 2020. And so the Big Mac price increased very quickly, but the government was still trying to peg the exchange rate. So that meant that briefly, the Big Mac was one of the more expensive in our index. It was second only to Switzerland. Then the black market exchange rate pressure got too much, the official exchange rate ceased to be meaningful, and so we switched to using the black market. And because the black market rate had fallen so much, even though the price of the Big Mac in Lebanon was rising, the currency was falling even more dramatically, which has given rise to the undervaluation you see now.
1: And that's it? That explains the precipitous fall?
2: The other thing to consider here is that actually Lebanon right now has a certain amount of currency chaos. There are multiple exchange rates, and for some items you can import them at a more favourable exchange rate, a sort of artificially subsidised one. So it may be that some of McDonald's suppliers are able to import wheat, for example, at a more favourable exchange rate, and also cheese, and that may have kept the price of the Big Mac lower than it otherwise would be and has contributed to the undervaluation of the pound on our index.
1: We spoke last year about the index, and I know you've been keeping a keen eye on Big Mac prices for some years now. Is this the cheapest burger you've come across?
2: No, not quite. I think the cheapest was actually Ukraine after the Russian invasion. I think in sort of early 2015, the Rivna was, I think, 75% undervalued and you could get a Big Mac for roughly $1.20 at the time. So although you know the Big Mac index is obviously lighthearted, it's tongue in cheek, it does reflect occasionally some rather sad economic events around the world, whether it be the invasion of Ukraine, the economic disaster in Lebanon. In those situations, even the artificially cheap Big Mac is a small